This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Monday, November the 7th, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit those horns and go. Feeling good on a Monday. Thanks for making time to be with us and starting your week off just right. Coming up on the show today, there continues to be updates and fallouts of what's going on with the Ontario Education Workers Strike. Strike? (laughs) First mispronounced word of the week. Not even a minute into the show. Well done. Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press will offer up a news update on what's going on with that labor strife. New legislation in New Brunswick demands that workers with disabilities get paid minimum wage. Ryan Delahanty will take a closer look at that legislation. And if you're trying to get a head start on holiday shopping, Marco Flalo may have a couple ideas for you. He'll walk you through the best smartwatches of 2022. Let's begin the show with our top story of the day, and it's a look at the healthcare system. Canada's health ministers are set to meet in British Columbia. Rob Westgate looks at the agenda. All 13 provincial and territorial health ministers are expected to meet with their federal counterpart, Jean-Yves Duclos, today and tomorrow in Vancouver. A media advisory from Health Canada says it'll be the first time all of the health ministers from different levels of government have met in person since 2018. Now, the meeting comes after Canada's premiers met in Victoria last July, where they asked Ottawa to boost the Canada health transfer, that's the money each jurisdiction gets for health care, up to 35%. Rob Westgate, the Canadian Press. And let's look ahead to the Emergencies Act inquiry, which continues today. The mayor of Windsor, Ontario, will appear before the inquiry this afternoon. There's already been some evidence submitted about what support Windsor was asking for from the federal government. Stephanie Taylor has the details. On the morning of February 14th, according to the city's timeline, Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino texted Windsor Mayor Drew Dilkins for an update on the Ambassador Bridge. A summary of that exchange shows Dilkins inquired about the Emergencies Act. The minister asked, quote, to the extent you can be supportive of any additional authorities that gets Windsor the resources you need to keep the bridge open, people safe, that would be great. Hours later is when Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced he was invoking the Emergencies Act, which until then had never been used. Stephanie Taylor, the Canadian Press, Ottawa. That's a look at what's happening around Canada. Well, let's look abroad in Egypt, where world leaders are gathering on Egypt's coast for the United Nations Annual Climate Conference. Jordana Miller has the background. Distractions, no-shows, and low expectations. That's the challenging backdrop to the UN's climate conference underway in Egypt's seaside resort of Sharm el-Sheikh. Over 50 heads of state are gathering, but the biggest climate offenders, China and India, only sending low-level emissaries. President Biden will arrive late because of Tuesday's midterm elections, and Russia's Vladimir Putin, of course, won't show up. But his war on Ukraine already damaging the fight against climate change, distracting 
world leaders who now have to grapple with the food and energy shortages caused by Putin's war. Jordana Miller, ABC News, Jerusalem. Now, the meetings are already underway in Egypt. Let's get to some sound from yesterday. Climate Committee Chair Alex Shorma laid out the extent of climate damage this year alone. How many more wake-up calls does the world, do world leaders actually need? A third of Pakistan underwater. The worst flooding in Nigeria in a decade. This year, the worst drought in 500 years in Europe, in a thousand years in the US, and the worst on record in China. Sharma points to the multitude of ways climate change will impact people. The cascading risks are also clear. Entire economic sectors becoming unsustainable and uninsurable, entire regions becoming unlivable, and the strain on the global movement of goods and the pressure of people to relocate because of the climate crisis becoming almost unimaginable. Professor Anya Waite is leading a delegation from Dalhousie University's Ocean Frontier Institute to the UN Climate Conference. Professor Waite says people need to understand what role the ocean will play in the evolving climate. The problem we have is that the ocean is sort of out of sight, out of mind. And in fact, the ocean controls our climate. Um, and it has providing huge climate services already to us. So it's absorbed 90% of the heat that we have produced so far. UN Climate Change Executive Secretary Simon Steele says accountability is at the heart of any climate policy. The heart of implementation is everybody everywhere in the world, every single day, doing everything they possibly can to address the climate crisis. That's a look at some of the sound from Egypt as it keeps coming in over the course of the next few days. I'll be sharing it with you, just like I'm doing with the Emergencies Act and with this health minister's meetings. There's no shortage of interesting news for me to share with you. But let's get to our daily polls at Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. On Friday, we engaged in a little bit of media criticism. I asked you, do you feel like mass media news reports treat you like a child? Ooh, no numbers in my script. Eliza, I need to borrow your eyes to read the numbers off the screen for me. Of course, Dave. Uh, so we have, yes, it uh, it does make me feel like it treats you like a child. Is <laughs> Yes, that is 79%, and no, at a 21%. Wow, preaching to my choir here, apparently. It turns out uh, we have a lot of media critics amongst the Now with Dave Brown contingent there on social media. I know our polls are unscientific, but there may be some lesson to be learned there for intrepid editors who may be watching or listening to the show. Let's get to today's daily poll. As mentioned right off the top, Canada's health ministers are meeting in British Columbia today. What do you think their top priorities should be? Hiring more staff, build more hospitals, better efficiency, or telehealth strategies? I, again, understand that all of the above is the actual answer here, but I want to pin you down into a top priority. The fact is, you can barely do any of these other things unless you hire more staff. And hiring more staff takes time. I'll bang this drum over and over and over again when we talk about the healthcare situation across the country, people in long surgery wait times, people not being able to access a family doctor, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That all boils down to hiring more staff, but that takes years to train people. 2 to 3 years to properly train nurses, let alone give them the job experience to be efficient at their job, it takes what 10 years, 11 years, 12 years to train doctors, let alone specialists. 
So if you want to hire more staff, yes, the immigration policy we talked about last Friday in the news panel needs to be part of that. You need to be bringing in qualified people from abroad to fill some of these staffing gaps, but you need to be putting in robust strategies at your college and university level to make sure specialists, people who handle imaging, people who deal with any kind of diagnostics, doctors, specialists, all these folks need to be getting hired, but they need to be getting trained. This is going to take a decades-long strategy to bridge some of these gaps, but hiring more staff is at the core of this, at the absolute core of this. Mike Ross, top priority. What do you think? Uh, I'm going to kind of double up here. I'm going to go with uh, be more efficient, but I'm also going to write in a little bit of a caveat there, and that is change our attitude as people who use healthcare in Ontario or BC or Quebec or wherever you are, mostly because I know like just up the street from me is an urgent care clinic. Last year, I had uh, a fall in my basement. I think I talked about it on the show where my little kitten was stuck in the ceiling and I had to go out and get her from the ceiling. And as I came out or came down the ladder, I fell off the ladder and I hit the back of my head. I couldn't see what happened, but I could see that I was bleeding. I didn't run to an emergency room and take up a spot there. I went to the urgent care clinic they patched me up. It was a superficial wound, no problem. And even if it was like something really small, they would have stitched me up. If there was something broken, they can put a cast on you. They have uh, x-ray uh, services right there. So to me, I was able and, and, and smart enough to not use up an emergency room spot for something that wasn't really an emergency. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a huge, huge part of what is sort of holding back and and really creating obstacles in our healthcare system. That's a big one, a really big one, especially over the last couple of years, where on one hand, you know, we're, we're being bombarded with stories about COVID and respiratory illness, and you know, you've got to be on guard for it. So what happens? A lot of people get a, a respiratory infection of some kind, or they think it is, Where do they go? They run to the emergency room. And so I think if we restructured and made urgent care clinics open 24 hours a day, and when you show up at the emergency room, if you're not an emergency, you don't get triaged to the back of the line at the emergency room. You get triaged to the urgent care clinic. Mm -hmm. We're not going to serve you here tonight. You need to go to the urgent care clinic and they'll take care of you there. But make that a 24-hour-a-day service like an emergency room. Boy, the efficiency that we could uh, we could make, I think, would be would be fantastic. Yeah, there's, there's really something to that. I know when I lived in Ottawa, there were a lot of apple tree clinics around, which really offered a lot of those services to people in terms of sort of day-to-day. Oh, gosh, I've got a really bad cough. I've been sick for four or five days. You get in, you get out in a couple of minutes, you've got your prescription, you're off to the pharmacy, and away you go. There's really something to that as a method. And, Mike, I would even go one step further and say, what kind of diagnostics can we include in these clinics as well? So if you mm-hmm. sprain your ankle, but you want to get a quick x-ray on the ankle, can the clinic offer you that kind of service? As again, opposed to going to an emergency room, listen, my ankle is the size of a softball. I don't think it's broken, but it's got to be checked out by somebody. It's probably only going to take 20 or 20 or 25 minutes if that 
what can we do at the clinic level to make sure that we're doing the triaging there? Dave, the, the, the clinic that I went to here in Ajax, literally in, in the same little block of offices is the urgent care clinic, the x-ray clinic, and the blood work uh, yeah, clinic. Boom. They're all there. There it is. They're all there. So let's have them all running 24 hours a day. And people are going to say, well, why would you have a blood clinic running 24 hours a day? Well, well, okay, maybe not 24 hours a day, but certainly longer than they are now. Yeah. I walked into a clinic last week to get some blood work done, and there were 30 people ahead of me. That That's insane. So open it up. Make it so that I can go there at 10 o'clock at night when it's more convenient. And I'm telling you, the backlogs that we have will free up. Mm -hmm. There's something to be said about being able to get a CT scan like I did it just a few weeks ago at 630 at night instead of two o'clock in the afternoon. I went in there. There was nobody in line in front of me or behind me. It's just a smart way to go. 24 hours a day. Let's really, if you're going to open it up, then open it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think at 24 hours, like you say, there could be some quibbling there on the fringes, but certainly a 5 a.m. to midnight situation could be something that works there. There's definitely a way to do this, but also benefit people who work irregular hours, people who do shift work, overnight sure. work. That would definitely would work you for not, them as well. Would you not want to get your imaging done three, four months sooner if they offered you a spot at one o'clock in the morning? Oh, heck I yeah. Would. Heck I'd go. yeah. Let's get that taken care of for sure. Let's bring in Eliza Rocco to this. Eliza, Mike and I just occupied a bunch of time chatting about this brainstorming. Dave Brown Consulting is always open 24 hours a day. But what do you make of the priorities? Let let me lay these out one more time because we kind of wandered off there. Hiring more staff, building more hospitals, better efficiency, or telehealth strategies. What do you think, Eliza? Like you said, I I would love any and all of these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I didn't put all of of the above as an option because we know that's the answer. Um, But... I think in the very, very long run, building more hospitals would be amazing. That would eliminate wait times, building more urgent care centers. That would be great. The The problem is we don't have the luxury to wait that long. Mm-hmm. That's that's mm-hmm. going to take years and years to get new hospitals and new staff for those hospitals. That's... We are we are having issues now. Right. Big issues. Why build new facilities if you don't actually have the staff to work exactly, at the facilities? Exactly. So my answer has to be hiring more staff. The workers, they're so overworked. They're so burnt out. There's no one to replace them when they do get burnt out. It is such such a vicious cycle. And there's there's no other way to dig ourselves out of this hole than just yeah. by hiring new yeah. people and training them. That's it, it's just, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's the only answer at this point, and it's not a very good answer because it's another thing that's it's going to take a while, yeah. and we don't have the time for it to take a while. But maybe those things can work in concert, right? That if it takes six to ten years to build more facilities, we can use those six to ten years to actually train the people. Exactly. Right? You can exactly. Like right now, right now, governments, provincial governments can go to med schools federal government, I'm sure, can get involved in this too, go to med schools at McGill or U of T or UBC and say, here's the deal, guys. You are going to admit 100 more students this year. Like that, and that's not negotiable. You are admitting 100 more students who are in their third year of their undergrad, and we're getting this going right now. And in the meantime, we're also going to break ground on a hospital in every major city in the country. And we're going to build and we're going to build a smaller facility in every medium-sized town in the country. And we're going to do this as a six to ten year strategy that shows vision. That would be great. Yeah. Is that gonna happen? No. 
Probably, no, probably not. Because probably it, not. it actually does it actually does require like a little bit of foresight yes. and like sound policy. And let's be clear, a lot of money. Like a whole <laughs> a mess lot, of, money, a lot of money. A whole mess of money. Maybe one day. Maybe one day. Eliza, thank you for this. <laughs> thank you. That's Eliza Rocco. You can vote on the poll at Accessible Media on Twitter at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. That's where you find us. You can also write in via email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or give us a phone call, 1-866-509-4545, 509 4545 If you do leave that voicemail and you want it played on the air, you have to give us permission to do so. Let's go back to Mike Ross. Mike has the national weather updates. Thanks, Dave. This is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We begin in St. John's, Newfoundland. Mainly cloudy today with a high of 17. To Halifax next, a high of 21 today and mainly cloudy. Let's go off to Montreal. A mix of sun and cloud this morning and a temperature steady near 14. Ottawa will have a mix of sun and cloud and a high of 13. To Toronto, same as Ottawa, mix of sun and cloud today with a high of 13 degrees. To Thunder Bay, Ontario, cloudy with a high of plus five. Now we move into Winnipeg, mainly cloudy. The high will be zero. The wind chill this morning, minus 12. Saskatoon will have increasing cloudiness and some light snow this afternoon. The high, minus nine. The wind chill, minus 22 this morning, minus 17 this afternoon. Let's go to Calgary next. Snow. 5 to 10 centimeters in total. Your high is minus 13. The wind chill this morning, minus 28. Minus 22. Yeah, minus 22 this afternoon. Uh, I believe, because I read the uh, weather last week, I believe this is the first risk of frostbite advisory we have this year. Wow, ring the bell. Ring the bell. Yeah, ding, ding, ding. Calgary, bundle up. Well, Mike, Uh, Mike, uh, 5 to 10 centimeters. After a couple, like, multiple centimeter dumpings last week, too, we could be almost at a foot of snow in Calgary at this point. Yeah, actually, I uh, saw some uh, images from the uh, CFL playoff game that was happening there this weekend um, uh, or, or preparations for their CFL playoff gaming. And uh, boy, their practice field was snow covered. Like, there we go. Really bad. Yeah. So they, the plows were out on the field for sure. Uh, we're going to Cal. No, Edmonton next. Edmonton's got some snow, two to four centimeters in total. Their wind chill today is going to be minus 23. Let's go to Yellowknife, a mix of sun and cloud, a high of minus 17 today. The wind chill, minus 27 this morning, minus 22 this afternoon. Vancouver, mainly cloudy today with a high of plus 5. And Victoria will have some showers and a high of 6. And that was your AMI National Weather Report. From Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Mike. Coming up after the break, we catch up with Michelle McQuig for an update on what's going on with the Ontario education strike. There's a whole bunch of news to discuss, so we'll talk about that with Michelle. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. I shared a whole bunch of news stories with you in the first segment of the show, but there is a whole bunch happening, especially in the province of Ontario. So let's bring in Canadian Press Weekend News Editor Michelle McQuig to find out what's going on with the education workers strike. Hey, good morning, Michelle. 
Good morning, Dave. Michelle, there are a million angles into this story, but let me start oh with the broad, yeah. basic journalism question of du jour. What's the latest with the Ontario education workers' strike? Well, uh, we might actually would have had more to say about this if we had been convening half an hour from now, but uh, but we're not. Um, <clears throat> there are going to be two news conferences on either side of the major players for this particular story. As we speak, uh, Premier Doug Ford and um, Education Minister Stephen Lecce are holding a news conference, and we don't actually know what's coming up with that. But, uh, but so far, anyway, the government has showed absolutely no sign of backing down in the face of rapidly mounting and really uh, significantly escalating resistance from the Canadian Union of Public Education, or excuse me, the Canadian Union of Public Employees, and they represent education workers. We're talking about like custodians, janitors, educational assistants, all the, the support staff that are really crucial to classrooms. Um, they are also having a newser at about 11 o'clock this morning. But they're also going to be joined by a number of other big labor leaders. And there are there's a lot of speculation swirling about the solidarity that's been uh, mounting in, in recent days as this union tries to fight the government's legislation that imposed a contract on them and ban their right to strike. Uh, there's media reports out there speculating that there's going to be a big multi-sector walkout, even potentially on a national scale next week, mm. as people like the Ontario Federation of Labor and the Canadian Labor Congress uh, start to get on board with this and, and join this news conference that's happening with QP uh, later on this morning. Um, so yeah, that's what's happening there is that those news conferences might advance the ball, but in terms of practical implications for today, the legislation banning the strikes is in place, but QP is still off the job. They walked off on Friday. They've indicated that they're not going to go back, regardless of what happens in terms of the government's legislation or a labor board ruling that we can get to in a bit, if uh, yeah, you wish. Uh, yeah, yeah um, Michelle, to like, to like, to like, stop right there. Already too much. Already too much. Let, let's let's slow down. Let's keep breaking this down. The Ontario Labor Board. <laughs> I'm what, sorry, my what, brain gets no, ahead no, of me I, with this. No, no, that's what that, that's when I when I said there's like so many octopus tentacles to this. Oh, like, yeah, no, it's like it's wild. It's wild. So let's try talk about coordinating it all weekend. Dude. That, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm 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 just amazed you're awake for us right now, Michelle. So tell me about the Labor Relations Board. <laughs> what role are they playing? Also, what we're going to find out probably a little bit later today. Yes. Um, <clears throat> so after the legislation passed. The Labor Relations Board was asked to get involved to rule on whether or not QP was engaging in an illegal strike. So yes, there's a law that's passed, so technically they are contravening this law, but the two sides wanted to go and make arguments in front of the Labor Relations Board. Um, the Coles Notes version is that QP says that they're not actually striking, they're engaging in legitimate political protest, and that they're not withdrawing services because they're, act they're violating a contract that was imposed on them rather than one that was collected that was, excuse me, reached through collective bargaining. Uh, the government is saying they're on strike, you need to declare this illegal, and then we can start imposing fines on the unions. This labor board hearing got started on Friday around four o'clock. That wrapped up at 11 p.m. On Saturday, they ran from 9 a.m. to 1 a.m. or oh so gosh. on Sunday morning. Oh my uh -huh. gosh. Uh-huh. And then additional eight hours on Sunday when they got started at seven and wrapped up around three. So it just went on and on and on. The chair of the board, Brian O'Byrne, had, had indicated that he had hoped to hand down a decision yesterday, but he, he made no promises. And in fact, there was no decision. We are still awaiting that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, so so let's you use the word solidarity before. And I know we'd be here all day if we started going school board by school board, but we know what happened on Friday was that a bunch of schools were closed. 
Um, a bunch of school boards said we cannot engage in school. Give me the general sense of what the landscape is today from the point of view of school boards. The general sense is that a number of them are in fact closed. Uh, the, the schools are closed. Some of them are the schools are closed outright in many cases, though they have shifted to remote learning the way we were facing in much mm -hmm. of the pandemic. We have some experience with that. We've been playing with that game for a couple of years now. Exactly. Yes. And and I happen to know a lot of parents who are not at all happy about this, even mm. as they understand or, or even support what might be happening on QP's end. But uh, yeah, this is... Uh, this is what we're facing. It's a shift back to remote learning. And it's directly at odds with what the government has been saying is their top priority to keep people in class. So their effort to impose that legislation appears to have backfired, at least for now. Um, we don't have a sense of how long this is going to go on for, but the message from the school boards is basically until further notice. By and large, they're going with remote learning. Now, there's many, many school boards who have not yet made their plans clear, and that's mm -hmm. hard on parents, that's too, when they don't necessarily know parents, what to yeah. expect. And of course, that this impacts, you know, daycares when some of those are embedded in schools. It all gets exceedingly complicated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If I was giving the premier and the education minister some advice, I would say find your finest pair of coveralls and start plunging toilets at schools. That's how you're going to get the public on your side. But in the meantime, uh, people are ticked. Uh, Dave Michelle, Brown Consulting, everybody. Dave Brown Consulting is full of great ideas, perpetually right. full of great ideas. Well, Practical, listen, you, you, actionable. Michelle, I mean, again, we're like we're not editorialists here on a Monday. We do journalism when we talk on Monday. But, like, frankly, right. you can't have a school that doesn't have custodians, right? Like, kids are disgusting. And they're going to make messes, and you need custodians in schools. You can't operate you really a school. Feel, though? You, you can't operate a school without custodians. You can't. Well, the, I mean, this is this is the message from the board. It's that it, essentially, it's not safe if the QP workers are not there. They cannot operate the schools in safety. A lot of teachers really heavily rely on their educational assistance for crucial support, and that's their argument: is that we 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 simply can't do this. So schools are closed. Yeah, Michelle, or, or we're going remote. Michelle, I know you've been following this one, chase literally chasing this dragon all weekend. So how about we talk about something else for a minute to maybe uh, ease your mind? Sure, why not? The the. Airline, WestJet, had a pretty oh, significant oh, yes. outage over the weekend. Uh, it maybe almost got like buried in the headlines based on so much other stuff happening in the world. But what was the extent of this outage for WestJet? Yeah, well, it was quite significant. It was a system-wide outage that happened on Saturday, and we didn't necessarily know what had happened. The company started to provide a few more answers yesterday. Apparently, what happened was a, a, a quote, cooling issue. I don't have any more than that. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> Sorry. I mean, it, it sounds to me like a server felt right. some, some, Yeah, something, right. a, a computer got too hot and the, the liquids weren't moving. That's my guess, enough. yeah, because it, it, it was in their data center. It's a cooling issue in the data center. Um, so what happened there, though, is it basically took the entire contact center offline and no one could access any guest reservations. That, so That makes it difficult to run an airline. It certainly does, and it certainly makes it hard to get anywhere if you had trips booked. So at uh, a number of airports, we were looking at long lineups, really, really unhappy customers, Oof. as you can imagine. <clears throat> uh, my colleague, Rob Drinkwater, was able to get someone on the phone yesterday as he was standing in line at Calgary Airport again. Uh, this is a guy who was trying to go for a, a guy's weekend to Vegas on Saturday, and he couldn't go. They kept rebooking, and, and it wasn't going to work. And so they decided, okay, maybe we'll fly to San Francisco and drive to Vegas instead and go do it that way. And they went through the exact same process oh, of cancellations. Oh, and and, and and then so eventually they just said, forget it. We're going to go back to Winnipeg where they're from. So that was a bit of a bust of a guy's weekend for them. And they're, they're not at all happy with WestJet right now. 
Um, Instead of a weekend uh, at the Bellagio, you get a weekend in the Calgary the airport. Calgary airport. Yeah, good times, right? Um, and the, the thing is that we don't necessarily know when it is going to be fully resolved. WestJet says that the issue itself has been sorted out and they're back online. But because of residual effects, they, they've cautioned that there's going to be disruptions and some instability for the next few days. Oh, yeah. If you lose 48 hours of getting flights out, the cascading impact is going to be gargantuan in terms of trying oh, to sure. get people from point A to point Z. And they canceled 200 flights is the, is the number that they've officially put on the record for the number of flights affected. So that's very significant. That's a lot of people. Yeah, it's a lot of yeah. plans upended. And then you got to get you got to get planes, got to get planes to the proper airports to move people around it. It turns into a real mess real fast. Oh, yeah. It's it's a very complicated game of Jenga when it comes to the coordination. It's, yeah. it's it's pretty it's it's hard to, to swing. All of this, of course, at a time when when we know that travel has become uh, more complex and, and more uh more of a risky proposition yeah. than, we, than we, it has been before. We think we finally fixed the arrive can thing. Ha ha, but guess what? Now you can't actually Psych. get on your flights. So, exactly. you know, that's how, we, that's how we solve the long lineups at security. You can't actually get your flight confirmed. So there you go. Boom, we found a solution. Michelle, thank you for this. We always appreciate catching up. My pleasure. Have a great week, everybody. That is Michelle McQuig, the weekend news editor, the Canadian press, and one of our panelists on the news panel on Friday. So come back Friday morning, 9.15 a.m. Eastern time, and Michelle and Joita. We'll be here for some of that. Coming up after the break, I have the regional news update. We'll also have a little bit of a chat about uh, these clocks changing over the weekend. How are you dealing with the time change? But first, here is Canadian press reporter Rob Westgate with your morning business minutes. Bay Street finished last week on an up note, adding more than 200 points Friday, lifted by strong gains in the financial and base metals sectors. Toronto's S&P TSX gained 209 points to close at 19,450. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average climbed 402 points to 32,403, while the Nasdaq rose 132 points to level off at 10,475. Asian markets are starting the week off on a positive note, with Japan's Nikkei finishing up 328 points at 27,528. The Hang Seng in Hong Kong closed up as well, 435 points at 16,596. And looking ahead now, the Competition Tribunal's public hearing on Rogers Communications taking over Shaw Communications kicks off today as the telecom companies look to take the deal across the finish line. And finally, the loonie trading at 73.98 cents U.S. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Rob Westgate. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's get to the regional news update. Let's begin in British Columbia, and I want to start with an update on the atmospheric river that we talked about on Friday before we went into our weekend. Those rainfalls did end up knocking out power to almost 300,000 people on BC's southern coast. According to BC Hydro, the majority of customers, over 90%, have had power restored to them. But over the weekend, 300,000 people, over 300,000 people lost power due to some of those storms. And the weather stays gnarly across British, British Columbia. A series of snowfall warnings span much of BC's southern interior, along with the east coast of Vancouver Island. Environment Canada says snow could accumulate between Duncan and Nanaimo on the islands, and the weather office says stretches of several highways throughout the interior 
could experience significant snowfall. Those routes include Highway 97 from Clinton to 100 Mile House, Highway 3 from Paulson Summit to Kootenai Pass, as well as Hope to Princeton, the Coquihalla Highway from Hope to Kamloops, and the Okanagan Connector. Let's head over to the prairies where firefighters were called to a Saskatoon hotel when incompatible chemicals were mixed together in the building's boiler room. The Saskatoon Fire Department says when crews arrived at the Hilton Garden Inn yesterday in the afternoon, they shut down the lobby, the boiler room, and pool area to restrict the movement of people and also turned off the ventilation system. The two chemicals were determined to be muriatic acid and sodium chloride. EMS, EMS transported two people to hospital to be checked out and a third person found their own way to the hospital. And then over to Ontario, we just spent a whole bunch of time talking about an education worker's strike. Well, what about a transit strike? About 2,200 GO Transit bus operators, station attendants, and other employees are on strike. Nicole Rice explains. The Amalgamated Transit Union Local 1587 says it was unable to secure a contract with GO operator Metrolinx despite weekend negotiations. The union has said key issues include job security and job safety relating to hiring contract workers from outside companies. It's accusing Metrolinx of refusing to budge on those issues during the most recent round of talks. The union says Monday's job action comes after members voted 81% against a previous contract offer. Metrolinx, which did not immediately respond to a request for comment on the looming walkout, has previously said bus service will be suspended on Monday if a strike goes ahead, though trains will remain in operation. Nicole Reese, The Canadian Press. So let's offer a little more context to that. Go buses will not be in operation during the walkout, but go train trains, stations, and the UP Express trains are still in service. Metrolink's spokesperson, Anne-Marie Aikens, says the onus is on customers to make other arrangements. Customers were really uh, hoping that they plan ahead, give themselves some extra time, figure out other local transit options or what train options they have, and keep themselves informed. And over to the Atlantic provinces, a tentative deal reached Sunday could end a strike by 600 school support workers in Nova Scotia's Annapolis Valley. The Nova Scotia government and General Employees Union issued the statement late Sunday, saying the deal was reached after two days of bargaining with the help of a conciliator. The tentative agreement is being recommended for acceptance by the Support Workers Bargaining Committee, and a ratification vote will be held for the union's Local 73 on Tuesday. The workers in the Annapolis Valley went on strike on October 24th, and those on the South Shore walked out on October the 25th. The striking workers include educational assistants, early childhood educators, student support workers, and outreach workers. That's your look at the regional news, but let's bring Mike and Eliza back into this conversation. Of course, the weekend was daylight saving time and the clocks fell backwards. Maybe you got that extra hour of sleep on Saturday night into Sunday. Maybe you didn't. Eliza, Mike, you guys both have cats, and I don't think cats quite understand the notion of daylight saving. So was the meowing and the purring and the scratching getting going early on Sunday morning, Eliza? Oh, yes, it was. I do not care about uh, time. Uh, They also were scratching and playing around this morning. So daylight savings were not, uh, they're up at all times. Do you find that actually messes you up? Like, do you find that normally you'd be able to handle the daylight saving, but because of the kitty cats, it gets a little (laughs) bit crazier? It's not too bad. They were, I think, 
once we get more into the daylight savings, they'll get used to it. But uh, it was very bright this morning, mm. earlier than mm. they thought. So they were uh, questioning why I wasn't up yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mike, what about you? Were the cats uh, driving you a little crazy with the uh, clock change? No, not at all. In fact, it was my wife that uh, that was driving me crazy Sunday morning because she woke me up an hour early because she hadn't turned her clock back. Oh, dear. So she woke me up saying, hey, come on, let's go. It's 930. And so off we got, you know, we get up and off we go and making coffee, doing it. And suddenly I look at the clock and realize, hey, wait a minute. It's actually 830. And we were blown away because the the older cat sleeps in the basement. The younger cat, she's quick. She hides. She got to stay out all night on Saturday. And usually at 4 a.m., like this morning, she would be waking us up. But Sunday, miraculously, for some reason, she did not. She let us literally sleep for eight hours. Wow. I don't know what happened. I don't know what, something in the water, maybe the time change confused her. I'm not sure what happened. I'm just thinking of changing my clocks now every night just to throw her off. <laughs> because this morning, this morning at 3.30, <laughs> so yeah, Sunday was great. Monday, not so much. I definitely observed the last couple of weeks walking into work that it was mighty dark, especially as I was coming in around 6.30 or 6.45. I was actually not taking my usual walking path because the park was so dark. I was like, I'm going to get mugged or attacked by a skunk. So in a way, I actually kind of like this change. I don't mind the sun going down a little bit earlier if it means I get a little bit of brightness on my way in. But but Eliza, how do you feel about the sun going down a little bit earlier for a brighter morning? I actually, I like the change. Like, there are definitely some cons, but I do like the change as well in the morning because... My, my, I live in a very small condo. My partner is very sensitive to light when he's sleeping. So I'm, I'm not a normal person, of course. I don't lay my clothes out uh, the night before. I, instead, I turn on my flashlight and uh, oh, try and it. look around my bedroom it. for chaos. what to wear that I morning. I love a little bit of chaos in the morning. <laughs> so that's what I've been doing for the past couple months. But this morning, I could see all my clothing. I didn't have to turn on a flashlight. It was it was glorious. That's I really what I'm loved it. That's talking about. That's what. What do you believe the cons are in your mind? Like when when the change happens, the what cons don't you like? for me is it get it's getting darker earlier. When I I get home, there's still a couple hours of brightness, but if when I want to do exercise, it's when there there's light outside. Right. So right. If That's I, fair. I look out. I I say, oh, maybe I'll go to the gym now, and I look outside, and if it's dark. I'm not going well, it's to the bedtime. gym. It's, it's popcorn time. <laughs> exactly, it's time to make popcorn. Exactly. Mike, so less exercise, really. Mike, what about you? I know I know. a couple of years ago the change hit you like a ton of bricks back in 2019. But I'm curious, this time around, um, are, are you generally liking the darker in the afternoon? Do you like a little bit of a brighter morning or is it, is it the other way around for you? Yeah, I think the 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 hit that I take is, is my body clock, right? It's not so much the light and the dark. It's just my insides would get thrown off. Uh, right now, not really feeling it as much, so I'm not overly concerned about it. As far as the, the lighter in the morning, darker in the afternoon, I don't mind that because I like the fact that it's bright early. It helps you wake up. It helps you sort of, sort of charge into the day. And as far as the earlier sunset and it's darker earlier, this is also around the time of year where we're going to start having Christmas lights up. And I yeah, usually leave mine yeah. up through February because I love that color. And if it's going to get dark 
uh, around four o'clock in the afternoon, four thirty in the afternoon. I'm going to keep those lights up just to give people a little bit of, you know, joy, maybe a little bit of happiness at the end of their work days as much as I can anyway. Yeah, I like that. Well, Eliza, Mike, thank you for this. Hope you guys are adjusting well. I'm doing just fine on that adjustment. I uh, went to bed early on Saturday and I woke up late on Sunday, so got myself a good 10 hours overnight. So I'm feeling good about this time change, at least in this moment right now. Coming up after the break, Amy Amanti will be here. She has a review of the new Netflix mystery thriller film, Luckiest Girl Alive. But first, as we've Spoken about a whole bunch. Netflix has officially launched its commercial-filled tier. Brian Clark takes a closer look in tech trends. $6.99. That's the cost of Netflix's new Basic with Ads subscription. The company says you can expect to watch four to five ads per hour on the new tier. I mean, we've never seen uh, an ad-based tier come in this low from Netflix before. Eric Sorensen is a senior contributing analyst at Parks Associates. He says the move comes as Netflix faces newer, cheaper competition. For the first time, Netflix announced, and they actually said it, that our competition is fierce. The competition is coming after us. We have to make some changes and reevaluate the way that we do things. He says Parks Associates research finds one of the top reasons people unsubscribe from streaming services is price. It's a way to continue to keep subscribers engaged when there's so many content options in the market. With Tech Trends, I'm Brian Clark, ABC News. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Amy Manti is here from British Columbia with a review on the Netflix mystery thriller, Luckiest Girl Alive. Hey, good morning, Amy. Hey, good morning, Dave. Happy to be here on a Monday. Amy, how'd you guys do with the uh, rainstorms over the weekend? I know a North Van wasn't necessarily as impacted as other parts, but it was quite the storm. We lost power for approximately 10 hours on Friday night. Wow. So, yeah, we uh, we were impacted. There were a lot of trees down, a lot of uh, debris to pick up, and a lot of power outages. Well, there it is. Yeah, I wanted to get an update on that because, again, I've only been able to sort of read news copy, so I wanted to make sure I spoke to someone on the ground and what they were mm-hmm. what they were going through. And now there's some snow heading towards uh, eastern Vancouver Island in the interior today. So <laughs> the, uh, the mixed bag never ends for the good folks in British Columbia. But, Amy, let's jump into Luckiest Girl Alive. Give me a synopsis of what the film is about. Yeah, I mean, if we're getting some nasty weather, let's watch a little streaming on TV, if you have power. Um, so what I'll say about The Luckiest Girl Alive is that it uh, it follows our main character, who is a 28-year-old. Uh, her name is Ani Finelli, um, and she's a respected New York women's magazine editor. She appears to have the perfect life. And um, as she prepares to marry her boyfriend, Luke, uh, wealthy, a wealthy young man, Um, she's approached by a documentary filmmaker. And this documentary filmmaker wants to ask her questions, in particular, about a high school incident that went tragically wrong. So um, the tragedy, which I won't tell you what it is, results in uh, one of her classmates becoming a wheelchair user. And this sort of propels our story forward. Um, And we learn that Ani today, our Ani that we know and have fallen in love with as this character, Uh, has a past that she's trying to leave behind, a past where she was known simply as 
Tiffany. Okay. Get it? Tiffany, Ani. Right. I'm, I'm, okay. All right. Okay. I'm, 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 I'm vibing. I'm getting that. We go back mm-hmm. into the past. We're trying to cover up misdeeds potentially. Uh, Mila Kunis potentially? is the star of this film. Folks mm-hmm. might know her from that '70s show, Family Guy. People, people might know her from films like Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Really, Mila Kunis is a super, super talented actor. How did mm-hmm. she do in this role? Um, I was pleasantly surprised because um, there are some things that I think that uh, she got stereotyped for, especially for that 70s show, right? Because she was playing kind of a, a ditzy, not so smart archetype. And um, just like um, just like Kelly Colco sometimes gets stereotyped for playing that same kind of archetype in the Big Bang Theory, right? Um, so oftentimes when, when female characters are playing, uh, you know, the, the quintessential not so smart young woman, they can't break out and get roles that are a little bit more complex. So this is a complex role. Um, it starts off happy and bubbly and takes a turn. And so we see this roller coaster of emotion, which is a, 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 not every actor can do that. Some actors are one trick ponies. And and you feel like she potentially blossomed here a little bit. I mean, I, I would tell you that I, I I thought for years she's been a really good actor. She was in a movie called uh, Teen Camp uh, that was from the mid-2000s that she showed off a lot of acting chops in that one. Mm-hmm. I, I I think she's a really talented actor. Um, and I think the way she played Jackie on that 70s show was just really was, I mean, she was, oh, fif- she was 15 years old when she got that role. She was young. She Absolutely. lied to the, the producers about her age to get that role. Like she was young, young, young breaking in. And she's also off screen, apparently just like super, super chill, uh, noted for hanging out at Los Angeles Dodgers games and getting thrown out for drinking too many beers and yelling at the players. Oh, that's a piece of info I did not know. No, I agree with you that she's a strong act. I, I absolutely agree with you on that. What I, I guess was referring to the fact that um, I was glad to see that she hadn't been typecasted, um, that she was able to get roles like this as her career developed, because oftentimes there is a... There's a stigmatization yeah. around roles like that. Um, but I think that that in this role, um, she shows what she can do um, to the success of the film. What about the film itself? If we started talking about aesthetics, was it an appealing mm-hmm. film aesthetically? I know that's kind of a weird question as one blind person to ask another. Yeah, I mean, I think um, aesthetically, you know, we're looking at a film that is done in a narrative format, which is kind of fitting because uh, the character of Ani is a magazine editor. So it's 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 narrated as a prose. She is telling the story um, as the narrator and then we watch her go through the story. Right. Um, And then we have a sequence of flashbacks and we've talked about flashbacks before and how sometimes description isn't all that successful at reminding us when there are flashbacks. Um, or dropping the ball a little bit in that. So th- this is the aesthetic of the show. And it is very almost uh, almost sex in the city at the beginning. Like it's very high class, New York, um, you know, nothing's going to get me down kind of stuff. And we see this character transition into um, reinventing. Uh, they have reinvented themselves. And then when they have to relive their past, they reinvent themselves again. And there's a real uh, like female empowerment piece there, which mm-hmm. is part of the aesthetic of this. Uh, Amy, let's talk about tropes. Um, my mm-hmm. alarm bells are already going off because you used the expression person who wheels, uses a wheelchair. And I'm like, uh oh, here we go. Hollywood. Uh, what about <laughs> uh-huh. some tropes in the film? Well, um, there are two tropes that that um, that, that kind of stuck with me as, as a little bit disappointing. So one of the tropes is right off the beginning, you know, our, our lead character, who is pretty much the perfect 
specimen of a female, um, physically anyways, um, is, is, um, is telling the audience that she was a fat teenager and that is sort of shadowed as, as bad, you know, this is where I came from. I was a fat teenager. And then you see the actor who plays the teenager and she may be pleasantly plump, but she's not what I would call fat. And so there's this like, I don't know, the stigmatization that, that we're continuing to see women, um, you know, not, not being able to celebrate body types. So that for me was a little bit, um, I don't know. I, I, I just, I, I, it disappoints me to see some of that. Um, and then the second thing was uh, uh, the way that, that the wheelchair is presented, because without telling you all the backstory, we are made to believe that the person who's now using the wheelchair is, uh, is suffering for his crime. He is suffering, the worst suffering you can possibly, he doesn't need to suffer anymore. He's now using a wheelchair, right? Like he's got his punishment. And so for me, when I, you know, as a person who lives with a disability, I, it, 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 it impacts me in the way I uh, experience this kind of work. Yeah, it's it's the kind of stuff that we'd hoped that perhaps uh, the greatest possible punishment you could have is having a disability. We'd hope that maybe that trope uh, would, would would go away, but uh, it remains persistent. It's it's it's, it it's a it's a pesky persistent uh, trope that just hangs out there for whatever reason out there in the uh, filmmaking world. Uh, Amy, anything that you really liked about this movie? Yeah, I mean, I alluded to this sort of uh, just a few seconds ago, which is that there is some really interesting stuff here about. Um, the, the power of women about um, how women are kind of chameleons in a way where they uh, can take a past and bury it and, and, you know, tell themselves that they've moved on. And there's some of their, there's some real beautiful moments, I think in watching uh, Mila Kunis as Annie reconcile with some of this stuff. And, um, and I think that in a way it, it, it makes us reexamine what victimization looks like. Um, which for me was also really interesting. And I'm referring to Ani's character, not the character who's the wheelchair user, um, but that we re-examine. And I think stories like this are important to be told because um, we don't hear a lot of these perspectives from, from women, from women's experiences. And, and I think we hit it a little bit on the tropes, but anything you particularly disliked? Yeah, I think mostly the, the I mean, listen, I, I say this a lot, that these are imperfect movies, right? Like, you know, I, I, show me a perfect movie. Um, we're humans. We write movies. They're, they're fallible. <laughs> they're imperfect. Not um, everything can be the usual suspects. I write. Oh, oh gosh. Or uh, we could sit here and name all yeah, of our yeah, perfect we movies. Can, we could name a couple. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I would say that, that, um, really, I think what I outlined already is all that I would want to say without giving okay. away Understood. too much more. Understood. Yeah. Uh, what about the audio description? You mentioned that sometimes flashbacks can get a little wonky on the audio description front. Yeah, I mean, I thought, I mean, the audio description was adequate for me to be able to follow the story accurately. And it was funny because um, uh, my mother watched it, who's a sighted person, and she noticed some, uh, this is, uh, always makes me laugh, the the stuff that is, um, get that gets missed all the time that shouldn't be. Like for, there's a, there's one particular scene uh, where we're looking at a person's shoes and they're sitting in a chair. And then later on, we see that person walk away and they're wearing different shoes. <laughs> okay all right two, like two sets of different shoes um continuity uh, error not, yeah it's not really an audio description thing but it's kind of a funny thing when you when you have somebody who's got eyeballs who can see that stuff and you're like oh that's supposed to be some kind of easter egg i watch like the really movie i watch it? the movie good yeah i watched the movie good i don't i don't know if you ever knew this about braveheart 
but there's some big continuity stuff in Braveheart where he's running with a sword and then they cut away and then he's running. He doesn't have a sword. Oh, where did the sword go? Well, you know, right. Where did the sword go? And that's, that's the nature of the filming, right? Because they take so many cuts of these scenes and sometimes they stitch them together. And sometimes they know there's a continuity area and they error. And they hope we just miss it. Yeah, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do? Sometimes sometimes we pre-tape stuff and I'm a little more shaven or unshaven uh, depending on the day we <laughs> shave it. I can't I can't mimic the exact hair uh, follicles on my face the moment we pre-tape something. Um, Amy, out of 10, what do you give the film? With the tropes in mind, Dave, I gave the film a 7. I really think it's still worth watching, though, um, because I think we can learn a lot from these kinds of tropes. But I actually would be really interested to see what other women, if, if we got other women uh, or, or female identifying folks who want to like share comments about this, I'd be really interested to know um, if they were impacted by this kind of storytelling. Amy, we've got 30 seconds on the clock here. Got Give it. me the elevator pitch for the most recent episode of Accessing Art with Amy. Ah, yes. We've got Kim Kitchen in the studio for Accessing Art with Amy on this episode. She's a fascinating uh, artist with a disability who had to reinvent herself and shares with us some of the uh, audio soundscapes that she's creating. Right on. And you can find that on your favorite podcasting platform. Just type in Accessing Art with Amy. Hey, Amy, thank you for this. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. That's Amy Amanti, our film reviewer out there in Vancouver, British Columbia. Coming up after the break. We'll check in with Brock Richardson for a sports chat. And I've got a little bit of fun sound from this weekend's Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Monday, November the 7th, 2022. Coming up in the second hour of the show, new legislation in New Brunswick says workers with disabilities need to be paid at least minimum wage. Ryan Dillahanty will fill you in on that Captain Obvious story. And we'll talk about smartwatches. Marco Flalo. It's going to help you potentially offer up some great holiday gifts to your friends and family because he's got the best smartwatches of 2022. Just before we bring in Brock Richardson for a sports chat, there was some news out of the entertainment world that I wanted to share with you. Just some good sound from the inductions to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I want to start with Judas Priest because they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on Saturday for the Musical Excellence Award. Frontman Rob Halford reflected on how the band tried to create an inclusive community. We call ourselves the heavy metal community which is all-inclusive. doesn't matter what your sexual identity is, what you look like, color of your skin, the faith that you believe in or don't believe in. Everybody's welcome. Eminem was among the inductees. He dedicated his induction to Notorious B.I.G. and Tupac. I'm a high school dropout, man, with a hip-hop education. And these are my teachers. And it's their night just as much as it is mine. Dolly Parton also found herself inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Parton says the honor inspired her to make a new album. And I thought, well, why not now? I mean, with all the hoopla and all the craziness that went on around, around this, and uh, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to do a lot of classic songs. I've written a few rock songs, and I'm going to have a lot of the icons sing with me. 
even though Sam Robinson now lives in Boston. Anytime I have Dolly Parton sound to play, I will play it on this show, and I will dedicate it to our old audio control room producer, Sam Robinson. Other inductees included Carly Simon, Pat Benatar, Lionel Richie, the Arrhythmics, Duran Duran, Neil Giraldo. That was your Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Not necessarily a lot of rock stars inducted, but nonetheless, I wanted to play you some notable sound from Saturday night. Let's bring in Brock Richardson. He's here for a sports chat. Oh boy, Brock, we are going to get our laps in today running around the sports world. Let's begin in the world of soccer. Canadian star Alfonso Davies had an injury scare, but maybe it's only just a scare. Yes, thank goodness. And all of Canada can take a big sigh of relief as he suffered a bit of a hamstring injury in his game uh, in the Bundesliga with uh, Bayern Munich. And it, all things point that he will be okay for the uh, beginning of the World Cup, which is fine. I have here, I think one of the big things that happens, Dave, or is happening now is because it's been so long for Canada to be a part of the World Cup. I think we all sort of kind of hold our breath and, and hope that things go well. And I think this is why when you see a big name like Mr. Davies, you know, go down, it's a little bit like, oh, my goodness, what's happening? Because it's our first World Cup in a long time. Um, but we'll see. It's all good so far. And we just continue to have to hold Ooh. our breath for a little bit of time uh, in regards to Alfonso Davies specifically. Yeah, hamstring injuries always concern me, though. Soft tissue never never recovers the way you want it to. And the reason why I think people are so hyper-focused on Alfonso Davies, that is our star player. If, if, with no Alfonso Davies, we may finish last in our group, and the group is super tough. So without the, our top player, Canada's in a whole world of trouble. They, they might be in a whole world of trouble anyway, even if, even if Alfonso Davies plays and the way they have played through friendlies and the end of qualifying, Canada was not looking very good. But if they don't have Alfonso Davies, Brock, this could be uh, three or four games where you lose 5 nothing, 5 nil, and all of a sudden you're heading home from Qatar early and you're hanging your head in shame. Yes, absolutely. And with with their um, group, as it is, Belgium being... Uh, oh, it's one of the best teams the in the world. Top of, top of the class. That's tough. And then you've got Croatia and Mexico. And we'll do we'll do this whole deep dive as we get closer. But I just want, off the, off the front, what would be your expectation of this group? Like, if you were to look at this and say, I, Dave Brown, can walk away from this with blank and be happy well how would you fill the blank in at this point give me one second here brock i'm just i know you just said it up there but i want to lay it out again for folks just so that we're all on the same page here the group has belgium canada morocco and croatia croatia of course went to the final last time around in 2018 in russia and belgium is one of the top five teams in the entire world so right there that tells me brock that we're looking at a third place finish in that division and the fact is even in 2018 Morocco was a really really tough out and their coach is very very handsome very very handsome uh. coach you can't you can't rule that out when you're playing against a handsome coach so Brock I would say the goal for Canada is finishing third in the group 
but that means you're not advancing to the next round. So I would say it's more about please just don't humiliate yourselves, right? Lose 2-1 or 3-1 to Croatia and to and to uh, Belgium and then maybe try to get a draw or a win against Morocco. I, I would say to me that's that's the mark that I'm looking at. Just please don't humiliate yourselves. What's, what's the line that you're kind of setting for Canada, the expectation that you're setting? Yeah, I think um... – I think if we could possibly squeeze out a win against Morocco, I think I made a slip and said Mexico earlier, but if we could uh, possibly uh, squeak out against Morocco, um, against their handsome coach. Oh, uh, Irve. Oh, that, my gosh. That, that would be good. I, I Listen, as long as I'm able to sit and watch Canada play competitively, I, I'm, I'm good. I want to see them continue to use this as a as a building block and maybe qualify more often than once every 30 plus years that would be ideal um but i think we're in a tough group and uh it'll it'll be tough yeah but, but give me some competitive games that i can sit through for 90 plus minutes and be entertained yeah i'm with you we're just a couple of weeks away couple of weeks away for that for that action in Qatar. A lot of games at uh, like 2 in the morning, which is not really going to work for me, but there's going to be uh, d- games every day at like 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. That's about in my soccer watching zone. Looking forward to that one. I'll be on vacation the first week, so you may find me at a bar in Montreal taking in some and random soccer games. I think Canada plays at relatively decent times. I was looking it up this morning, and I, I saw one at like 11 a.m., and then 2 p.m. Eastern. So you're in that window of acceptable time oh, yeah. playing the, in Canada. Wednesday, so. November 23rd, the big game against Belgium, 2 p.m. Eastern time. So that's in, in Montreal. That might as well be happy hour. I'll go down to Peel Pub, get some $7, $7 pitchers and see where we're at. Uh, Brock, let's head over to something different here. I, I'm always confused by curling and the different qualifications and the different events and the different teams. But there was an event of note over the weekend. So give me an update on the world of curling. Yes, this was the uh, inaugural event for uh, this uh, tournament. It's uh, it's one that had a bunch of different uh, nations. It's called the Pan Continental uh, Cup, which saw Canada on the men's side, uh, Brad Gushu and his rink take home the uh, gold medal. And then we saw Kiri Anderson, who also took home the bronze. Uh, look. Brad Gushu was about as vintage as Brad Gushu could be. He was clean all week long. He only lost uh, the first game when everybody panicked to the United States, uh, the first game of the event, and everyone's like, what's wrong with Brad Gushu? And then he went on to just play a complete event. I think similar things could be said for Kerry and her team. This is the one team, Dave, that's kind of remained almost the exact same through this quadrennial, if not the exact same, actually. Um, most teams have a little shuffle here and there, but Kiri and her team have stayed the same. They've come off winning like three out of the last four Scotties and done well at World Championships. And this event that we just finished will help now qualify nations for uh, World Championships, which um, it was all based on a, a point system before. But now it's based on this particular event helping solidify some of the spots. And I, and I like that. The only challenge with this, Dave, that I see is that you qualify as a nation. You don't qualify as a team. So 
each each country kind of has their own little bond spiels to figure this out. I would like to see it be a bit different because if you look at Brad Gushu, he's the hottest, uh, you know, men's team in Canada at the moment. But um, he'll have to qualify his team through another event. He's qualified the nation, but that doesn't mean he gets the opportunity to participate. So I think they could look at something a bit different. I yeah. understand the whole equality there, but if you earned the spot as for the nation, therefore you should. Or, or you do it the other way around. You should have your national competition before you go to this, right? There, it should be the other way around. Right. You should yeah. qualify for your team to represent your country. Your rank goes to this competition to qualify your country for the worlds. Either way, it's all convoluted. Just just throw the rocks. Just throw the rocks and sweep the ice and we'll all be fine. Uh, Brock, let's go to, head over to the World Series. We did not get a Game 7 because the Houston Astros took care of business on Saturday night, winning their second World Series in six years. And you've got Jeremy Pena on the brain this morning, their shortstop. I do. He has won a whole bunch. He won uh, the American League Championship MVP. Then he won the World Series MVP. Plus, he's had a gold glove at shortstop. He has had an unbelievable year this year. Um, Dusty Baker was nothing but humble in the post game. You know, thanking uh, people who who are like minded to him and paved the way uh, for him to be where he is. And so I just found that it was a whole bunch of humble pie uh, taking place. There's no doubt, Dave, that Houston was the best team in uh, Major League Baseball this season, and they proved it, and uh, they won the World Series. And again, I want to reiterate, because this is going to be our last uh, baseball discussion until um, – until the the new season. Well, free this agency. Does, we'll, we'll talk about free of, agency. Of course, but game-wise, it's, 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 there's no game right now. This does not um, make their 2017 cheat uh, validized. In fact, this proves, like I said before, that they didn't need to do that. So congratulations to the Houston Astros and Dusty Baker is finally a uh, World Series manager and well-deserved. Yeah, good for Dusty. He's been in this game for a long, long time, deserves that ring. Hope he's enjoying a couple of those beers. So I'm guzzling a couple in the locker room after the after the game and hope he got kept them going all weekend long because he earned those. He earned those tasty pops. Brock, let's finish in the NFL where we had a bounce-back comeback. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers had a nice comeback victory over the Los Angeles Rams. Let's get some sound from Buccaneers wide receiver Scott Miller. He says, listen to this, Brock, he loves playing with Tom Brady. Best ever do it, best football player ever. So every time you step in the huddle, it's just a blessing and a learning experience as well. And you always, you always believe you're going to win, like that last drive, minute left. With him at the helm, you, you always know you got a chance and more than likely you're going to get it done. Brock, I have a lot of Tom Brady people in my life, and they all texted me yesterday in unison at about 7.15 p.m. Eastern time and said, that was some vintage Tom Brady with the game-winning drive with no time left. Okay, can we all, at the count of three, start singing Kumbaya? Because that's what it felt like to me. We're all happy when Tom Brady's doing Tom Brady things, but when he's not... Uh, you know, the, the sky is falling. It's all right for now in the world. Again, I think that the Buccaneers are going to are gonna win the division because it's garbage, really. Um, and, and so this is going to give Tom, Tom Brady a chance to play uh, in the playoffs and, you know, possibly contend 
for a Super Bowl, I, I'm going to temper those uh, Buccaneers fans and Tom Brady fans and say there's been a lot of alarming things that I've seen from Tom Brady, moreover than the vintage stuff we saw from uh, Tom Brady. So, I mean, I, I hesitate um, betting against Tom Brady, uh, but I've seen more bad than good this year, and I, I question it. And I, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of insight, Dave. My instant message group with my neutral zone team, Josh Watson messaged the group and said, and we wonder why Brock Richardson doesn't bet against Tom Brady. And this is the exact reason. And my only response to this in the message group was, bingo, you got it. Because it's so hard to bet against him. But again, I've seen more bad than good this year. So we'll see how it all shakes out. Well, the Buccaneers are off to Germany for a game next Sunday morning against the uh, Seahawks. That's going to be a tough test. The Seahawks continue to be surprising. I just worry, but newly single Tom Brady wandering around Germany, probably spend a Mm. couple days at the sauna or the spa and meet some uh, new people in his life. Uh, Brock, let's uh, jump uh, over to the Green Bay Packers where they continue to embarrass themselves, losing to the Detroit Lions 15 to 9. Ooh, yeah. The, the, the sky just continues to fall on uh, the Green Bay Packers. They, they just don't have uh, the team around them that we're used to seeing. And, and you know, I, I think you see um, Aaron Rodgers at times frustrated. I think when you lose a game uh, to, the, to the Detroit Lions as they did, it's kind of like East. But again, I, I haven't seen a lot of that vintage uh, Rogers either. Uh, so this is not a case where the division is uh, a foregone conclusion for Green Bay. I don't know if they are a playoff team uh, this year. I don't know if they're going to squeak into the wild card, but we'll see. It's just Oof, some ugly time. Even the wild card seems seems unlikely at this point, Brock. They're not going to win the yeah. division. The Vikings are now seven and one. They're a minus twenty two hundred, meaning you would have to bet two hundred and twenty dollars to win a hundred. No, excuse me. 2000 uh i'm getting my math all wrong you'd have to bet a lot of money to get uh to get to get even a hundred dollars back for the vikings to win the division that division's cooked nfc north that's the vikings division now yeah yeah no for sure and it just it's not like the buccaneers division and and when you have a a viking seems playing as consistently as they are it's tough and so you may not see aaron Rodgers in the in the playoffs this year and it's looking more and more likely that that's going to be the case. Yeah, embarrassing performance. The Green Bay Packers are an embarrassment. They're, he's playing badly. The whole team's playing badly. That, that's an ugly situation over there. And the Lions are a bad team. The Lions are a bad defense. That's the 32nd ranked defense in the league, and you scored nine points on them? Get out of here. That's garbage. Garbage. Let's get over to my beloved Miami Dolphins, who beat the Chicago Bears 35-32. I've got some sound here from Dolphins quarterback Tua Tungabailoa. Says the offense had one goal in mind. We were just playing 60 minutes um, offensively, not not looking at the scoreboard. Um, and really just, like I said, every opportunity that we got having the ball, we were just trying to score every time. Brock, it was the best game of the day. I watched every single second of it. There was no red zone for me in my life yesterday. The game was closer than it should have been. The Dolphins made four huge mistakes. Jason Sanders missed a field goal at the end of the first half. 
That was bad. They fumbled a snap late in the third quarter to knock them out of field goal range. That was bad. Tua Tungavailoa underthrew a couple balls late in the game. That was bad. That would have ended the game much sooner. And they just could not tackle Bears quarterback Justin Fields, who had a breakout day. Brock, nice win for the Dolphins. But I think Justin Fields, the Bears quarterback, was the star yesterday. He was just putting on a show for the Bearskies. Yeah, I mean, I I remember uh, looking at the score uh, last night and then watching the highlights and thinking, is is this really happening? Like, is is this really like is what's happening here? But you know, I, I, as a quarterback, you know, sometimes you get up to play, you know, um, the the bigger and and better teams than than you, and I think that's the case. I think Miami is a better team than the Chicago bears, but sometimes you put on your big boy pants a little higher when you get to play, um, you know, a marquee quarterback like Tua and, and team. But again, some of the stuff you saw, as you mentioned, you got to clean that up too, right? Like you got to look at yourself in the mirror and say, yeah, we gotta, we gotta win here. But there was stuff we didn't do great in this game either. Yeah, the Dolphins definitely happy to walk away with the win, but they made it hard on themselves by making a couple of uh, little mistakes. As you say, these things can get cleaned up. They have a first-year head coach. This is not atypical for a uh, first-year head coach to have a couple of these little incidents here and there, but it's the missing of the field goals. That one killed me. The, the missing of the field goal at the end of the first half really grinded my gears. Brock, it's not all sunshine and roses, though, in the football world. The Buffalo Bills dropped one to the New York Jets 2017 on a last-minute field goal. Brock, I I don't want your full analysis of the game, but I want to ask you this question. Bills quarterback Josh Allen, who is largely seen as the second or third best quarterback in the league, what happens to him in crunch time? Because it seems like every time the team is down late, he does something completely nonsensical, bad fumbles, bad throws, bad tosses. What happens to your guy during crunch time? Uh, it's all between the ears. It's it's literally between the ears. And it's almost like in his brain it goes, oh, we're at the last, you know, the last two minutes and under. Let's fold like a cheap shirt, you know. And But then we see, you know, wonderful things against teams that you go, really, you beat them, but you can't beat the Jets. Oh, okay. And like they've dropped a game here that gives Kansas City sort of a chance to wiggle their way back the top the AFC East. I understand we have the 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 win right now against them, but still, I Dave, for me the easy the, the simple answer, and it's not the easy answer, but it's it's the simple answer is it's totally between the ears, and it all gets shut down for Josh. It seems uh, at the last two minutes and under, which is not a good quality as a quarterback because in the playoffs you're going to have to play those two minute drives and if you fold like a cheap shirt in a playoff game you're done i'm being a little unfair because he was great in the last two minutes against the chiefs last year in the playoffs he had put together a couple of game winning drives that the defense blew for him so i'm being maybe a little unfair to josh allen but it seems more often than not it happened in the miami game earlier this year it happened yesterday against the jets it's happened in playoff games against houston in the past it seems like when the spotlight is shining brightest and he needs to make a big play it's just not there for him. So that that's to me, if I'm a Bills fan, that's my takeaway. My concern is we're a good team. We're probably still the best team in football, but goodness gracious, we need to stop making these mistakes in crunch time. And you missed a field goal that was important uh, going into the half, which would have had it a, 
a tie game yep. if we look at that. Mm-hmm. And that's that's big problems as well. Yep, absolutely. When you miss those 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 chances, it comes back to bite you in the butt sometimes. Football is fundamentally a game about execution. Brock, we got to get out of here. Have a great day. We'll talk to you tomorrow. We will indeed. You as well. That is Brock Richardson. He is the host of the Neutral Zone. Let's bring in a Bills fan who may be licking their wounds as well. It's Mike Ross at the AMI Weather Desk. Easy does it there, Dolphins fan. Oh. You couldn't lick your, you couldn't lick your lips, so take it easy. I don't think, Dol- I don't think Dolphin, <laughs> Dolphins have tongues. Yeah, they got tongues. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah, absolutely. But they couldn't <laughs> lick their lips in any event. That was a, hey, listen, all due you know, credit to the New York Jets for pulling off the victory yesterday. They Heck played yeah. really well. Sure did. Absolutely. Uh, let's get your AMI National Weather Report for Environment Canada. We will begin in Newfoundland. Corderbrook, to be exact. There'll be showers there today between 5 and 10 millimeters in total. The temperature will be steady near 13 degrees. Charlottetown. PEI showers today between 2 and 4 millimeters. Your high is 18 degrees. St. John, New Brunswick, mainly cloudy today and a high of 16. Quebec City, a mix of sun and cloud and a temperature steady near 13 degrees. Toronto will see a mix of sun and cloud and 13 as the high. To Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, cloudy today with a high of plus 5. Brandon, Manitoba, mainly cloudy with a high of minus three. The wind chill, minus 14 this morning, minus seven this afternoon. Let's go to Regina where the snow continues. It's cloudy, blowing snow late this afternoon, about five centimeters in total. The high, minus six. The wind chill, minus 21. Lethbridge, Alberta has snow, heavy at times. You're getting between 10 and 20 centimeters of snow. The high is minus 10. The wind chill this morning, minus 25, minus 20 this afternoon. Red Deer, Alberta, you're getting some snow as well, 10 to 15 centimeters. Your high is minus 14. Your wind chill will be near minus 26. Whitehorse, sunny today with a high of minus 17. However, the wind chill is minus 36 this morning and minus 24 this afternoon. That comes with a risk of frostbite. Kelowna, B.C., periods of snow, about 2 to 5 centimeters and a high of 0. And that'll fall to about minus 3 later on in the day. The wind chill, minus 10 this afternoon. And finally, Vancouver will be mainly cloudy with a high of plus 5. And that was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Mike. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the best smartwatches of 2022. Maybe a gift idea or two. Mark Aflalo. We'll strap in for that report. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI, the holiday season around the corner. And you may already be asking yourself, what do I get the person who already has everything? Well, what about a little bit of technology? And what about a smartwatch? Okay. Yes, smartwatch. Great idea. But there's like a million out there. So what smartwatch am I actually getting somebody? 
So let's talk about the best smartwatches of 2022 with Marco Flalo, the host of Double Tap TV, which you can find Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-TV. Hey, good morning, Mark. Dave, how are you? I'm pretty good, Mark. I, I, I don't mean to quibble with the entire, like, oh. purpose of this segment, but it really feels to me like a watch is a very personal thing. I would feel weird giving a watch as a gift to somebody. Yeah, I mean, but don't forget, you can buy a watch and give people the option to accessorize and yeah. customize it. It's not like it's not like you're going out and buying a Rolex for somebody or a or a swatch where there's seven thousand variations. When it comes to smartwatches, the customization really happens after the right. gifting process. Right, that's a good you point. You get the watch, you change the face. Maybe you get them a watch, you get them a couple bands, the things you can buy on Amazon to accessorize. There's lots of ways you can do this. Mark, one of the running jokes on the show is that I love me a rubric. I love me a, I love me a criteria. So before we even get into individual watches, would you actually have a criteria list or a rubric for evaluating what makes a good smartwatch? Yeah, I mean, listen, in the context, of course, this show, we're definitely going to have accessibility in there. So we have that aspect of it. Um, I think design is definitely a number number one on my list, quite honestly. Battery life would be number two, because if you're going to put a watch on your hand, the goal of a watch is to obviously tell time, but obviously we with smart watches, we want to get a little bit more from it. So battery life is pretty important. You don't want to have to worry about something dying halfway through the day. You want to get through an entire day. You know, you could slap it on a charger at night and wake up in the morning and it's ready to go for another day, at least, right? Yeah, And I, yeah. Think, I think the overall wealth of features, being a smartwatch, you want to make sure that you can do what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And that is extremely personal as well because there are watches that are better suited, for example, fitness tracking. There's watches that are better suited for just notifications. And there's watches that are better suited for, I don't know, skydiving. Yeah. No, it makes a lot of sense, right? That there's so many times when you talk to salespeople, there are a million features that don't offer benefit to people, right? You have to connect a feature to a benefit to the person who's going to put out the money to buy it. So let's start with the big boys, the Apple Watch and the Apple Watch Ultra. This would have to be a very good friend or family member in your life if you're springing one of these (laughs) as a gift. But what do you like about this series? Well, I mean, you have to, you, you can't ignore the history of Apple and the evolution of the Apple Watch. You know, the first generation Apple Watch was a home run to users at that given point in time. And it really has evolved quite nicely across the board. Now, there is this, you know, preconceived notion that an Apple Watch is only compatible with Apple devices. That's not true. You can pair your Apple Watch to other devices as well and use that via Bluetooth. But of course, it is the perfect companion for those who do have an iOS device. So really, at the end of the day, I think the Apple Watch is one of the best overall kind of all-around watches. But again, we you talk about that unique kind of selling proposition or or what makes it unique to an individual, and I think that's where you know it, it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna vary. The other thing is, you know, aside from the fact that it constantly gets better across the board. You know, you look at variations like the Apple Watch Ultra, and some, like my you know co-host Stephen Scott, think this is the perfect watch for someone who is blind or low vision. Mark, let's jump over to the Google Pixel Watch. I think it was with you. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Why does this one stand out as an option for folks? So Google isn't afraid to do things a little bit differently. Number one, aside from Apple, really the only other company, I mean, every other watch, smartwatch is out there, whether you look at the Michael Kors watch, the Android watches, the Huawei watch, we're going to talk about in a second, uh, they've got the round design. So they're going for that traditional iconic round watch. Now, when the Pixel watch was announced, they really are focusing on this kind of sleek, almost delicate look of the watch. 
it's not as rugged and I, I hate to say the word manly um, as people might you know pigeonhole it, but it really is a more of a delicate watch. Even the bezel on it has this nice curve to it that seems a little bit more fragile, even though it's made with Gorilla Glass. It's not that hefty kind of large, big footprint that's on your wrist, which is one of the design cues that I think Google was going for because they really want it to kind of blend in seamlessly like other watches do. That being said, they have their very cool card design interface, which is very familiar to Android users, allowing you to swipe left or right to go between things. And of course, it has all the features that every you know modern smartwatch needs mm-hmm. to have, including cellular, et cetera, et cetera. Mark, you mentioned a brand name there, Huawei. They may be yep. banned from building 5G infrastructure in Canada, yep. but they're still welcome into the smartwatch market. Why is this product getting so much praise? This one's getting a lot of praise because of the price point. You're looking at a sub $300 price point. You're getting more than all day battery life. You're getting three to four days of battery life. Yeah, you're getting getting incredible features across the board. And really, it's the cross compatibility that makes this a winner for everybody. Yes, the Pixel Watch is also cross compatible with the uh, iPhone and iOS devices. But the, the, the Huawei Watch works with absolutely anything. It does not require any 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 app platform, whether it's Android, whether it's Huawei's own Tizen operating system, or even Apple's iOS uh, operating system. It is quite quite the interesting design, and they've really gone with that iconic round design as well, but more of like the chronograph with a nice bezel, and it's a, it's a chunky watch, but it's a chunky round watch. It doesn't sit very high off your wrist. Let's zoom out here a little bit. You mentioned that Stephen thinks the the Apple iWatch, my goodness, the Apple iWatch Ultra, whatever we want to call the branding, he says that's yeah. the best watch for blind people. To your mind, when it comes to accessibility, is there one of these that really stands out? Um, I mean, the Apple Watch is categorically hands down the winner when it comes to accessibility in a smartwatch. It's something they had from the start. It's something they continue to improve upon. And every single model, as the processors get better and everything gets better on the watch, the accessibility features features just absolutely shine. You think of the, the gesture control, just being able to pinch and do things with your wrist and it being able to detect that motion. These are, are, are breakout features that make the Apple Watch the hands-down winner when it comes to accessibility. The Apple Watch Ultra takes that to another level because it increases battery life from just a day to, to several days. Um, not only that, but it has a much larger screen, which means you can actually, for people with low vision, can see way more on it. And of course, being rugged, being able to bang into absolutely anything and made for the outdoors, mm. it, combined with the accessibility features, has got to be the hands down. Yeah, rugged. Although you're paying the price point. <laughs> you're definitely paying the price point for it. Mark, what about you? If I was to look at your wrist, what, uh, what makes it onto your wrist on the daily? Um, right now, it's the Apple Watch Ultra. It was the newest. It was the greatest. I wanted to try it out and do things. But I do have an Apple Watch Series 8, which is the, of course, current generation of the non-Ultra watch, the regular kind of square design that I will be wearing for the next couple of weeks because I'm putting that to the test in a in a you know a variety of different kind of scenarios. Nice. The Ultra really is, you know, it's nice. It has great sleep tracking. It's got all the great features. I'm not diving. I'm not jumping underwater with this. I'm not jumping out of a plane anytime soon. I don't expect to be stranded in the Rockies either. So I think that the Apple Watch Series 8 might be that sweet spot for me. I uh, haven't worn a watch, well, probably in about 10 or 15 years since I was a regular watch wearer. I'll tell you this, though, Mark. I was emceeing a couple weddings over the course of the fall, and I had to be somewhat on a time check. And it was in those moments that I realized 
it is so awkward pulling out your phone to check the time while you're amongst <laughs> large groups of people. And I thought to myself, it is. man, I should potentially get a really cheap smartwatch for like this sole purpose of when I'm somewhere and I need to keep my eye on the time. But I don't want people thinking, oh, he's looking at his phone because he doesn't want to talk to us. Well, not only that, but, you know, look at the days where you could pop an earbud in and you could press hold your two fingers on the watch and hear the time or just set a timer before you go up on stage somewhere, right? You can set a timer that doesn't ring a loud noise. It just vibrates your wrist. Right. So you know when you hit certain milestones. There are a lot of benefits here that people um, need to dive into a little bit deeper to really kind of see the overall picture. The overall benefits of wearing a watch. Imagine watches making a comeback. Mark, thank you for this. We always appreciate catching up. My pleasure, Dave. That's Mark Aflalo, one of the hosts of Double Tap TV. You can find that Tuesdays, 8 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv or on demand at AMI.ca or on demand in the AMI-tv app for Apple and Android. Coming up after the break, we'll bring in Nazreen and Ramya and talk a little bit about audiobooks. And I've got some sound from a press conference with the Premier of Ontario talking about the education workers' strike. This is now with Dave Brown on ami Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Just before we bring in Ramya and Nizreen, I mentioned that there's some sound that came from a press conference with the Premier of Ontario. Just a couple of moments ago, we were talking to Michelle McQuig about an update on the Ontario education workers' strike. Well, the Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford, had this revelation during the press conference. Let's roll the clip. Our government is willing to rescind the legislation. We're willing to rescind... Section 33, but only if QP agrees to show a similar gesture of good faith by stopping their strike. So I understand why this is perceived as news from major media sources. But here's the thing. Basically, as you translate that, it says, we will rescind making your strike illegal if you promise us you won't strike. missing the mark slightly there, just ever so slightly. Let's bring in Ramya and Nazreen to talk a little bit about audiobooks here. So we'll just say good morning to get things started off. Hey, good morning, Nazreen. Good morning. And hello, Ramya. Hello. So there was a really interesting listener question or viewer question or reader question that came into Wired Magazine late last week in one of their articles where fundamentally the person was asking the author, asking the writer, Hey, does listening to audiobooks count as reading? A lot of my literary friends are looking down upon me for listening to audiobooks instead of reading. Now, the actual, like, article is not about accessibility. It's not about the disability experience. But we know that audiobooks are how a lot of people who are blind or low vision end up experiencing literature these days, including our very own Ramya Amuthan, who doesn't just do the book club on Kelly and Company, but has an audiobook roundup podcast on the mighty AMI Audio Podcast Network. So, Ramya, I bet questions like this end up hitting a little bit close to home for you. 
Absolutely. And we talk about it, Nisreen and I have talked about it on the show. And we've also, you know, we've been asked this question, right? Even just the the language around audiobooks. Do we say, are we listening? Do we say, are we reading? Like, do we have um, preferences or do we take offense if somebody says, oh, that's not really reading. That's actually just, it, you're listening. Um, but the, the article that you sent to us, Dave, in... Um, preparation for this conversation, like some pre-reading, was genuinely fascinating to me because it talked about retention and talked about memory. It talked about like how much uh, we actually take in. Does distraction make a difference? The attention span of listening to audiobooks versus reading print. But for me, the reason why I love audiobook listening is it reminds me of storytelling. Like I've said this mm. before where when we're kids, we listen to our parents read. I've had teachers who read out loud to us. Story time is a thing. And that is the headspace I get into most of the time when it's pleasure uh, reading and I'm listening to audiobooks. Yeah, the gist of the article was don't let your snooty friends be snooty and tell you that you can't enjoy literature however you want to enjoy literature. Yeah. Because reading whether it's in audiobook format or you do have the capacity to read in large fonts or you read in Braille is about enjoying the stories, is about enjoying yourself. It's not supposed to be an obligation. And I think that's something that people are always forgetting here when they say, oh, you know, listening to the book's not the same as reading the book. I, I'll grant you that it's not the same, but it's, mm -hmm. it's, but it's not lesser than. It's certainly not lesser than. You shouldn't be trying to tell people whether them consuming literature is, is a value ju judgment or a value statement about how they're consuming the content. Are they consuming the content and are they enjoying it? That's all that matters. It, I couldn't have said it better myself. I just want to say, like, the the difference, I can definitely feel it because I used to read using uh, my vision and I'm learning to read in Braille again. So I can tell there's so much difference in these approaches to reading, but a hundred percent, it's not one is better than the other. If you feel like you're dozing off or zoning um, when you're listening to an audiobook, it's probably just because the audiobook is not great. Yeah, there you go. I like that. Yeah. Blame <laughs> yeah, the audiobook. Like Nizreen, what about you? What's your, what's your take on this? About some of this terminology about does listening to audiobooks count as reading? Yeah, definitely. I spoke to Ramya about this and I definitely think it's a different form of reading and um, you're still grasping the same information, the same story, word for word. So it is a different form. It's not lesser than. And in fact, there were studies in 2016 in the past, multiple studies about, you know, putting them into groups, people who are reading print and uh, and listening to an audiobook. And at the end, they still got the same from, uh, same information, same story, um, all, the, all the information together. So it's not lesser than. It's just a different form of reading. So I think, I think it's, it's, it's not better. It's not lesser. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, I used to be so comfortable busting out my magnifying loop and just reading in public places. Mm -hmm. I don't feel as comfortable doing that anymore. So, yeah, maybe if I'm on a train, I am listening to an audiobook instead of necessarily taking my magnifying glass and putting it up to the page of a book. But like that, that's my choice. It doesn't it doesn't make it any less. I'm still trying to hear these human stories. I, I don't know. I think I think people, especially in the literature world, can become very, very judged. Uh, 
and and that I mean I think that's actually wait I shouldn't just be blaming, blaming literature people. The world has become very very judgy and very very protectionist of the way that they do things, and I think we need to keep tearing down these fences and these barriers. And just so long as people aren't hurting other people, they should be able to enjoy themselves however they want to. Nazreen, we we say goodbye to you and the birds, but have a great day. Thank you. Uh, Ramya, before we say goodbye to you, Kelly and company coming back in full force today at 2 p.m. Eastern time. What's coming up on the show? Yeah, so we're talking uh, to Ardra Shepard because the second season of Fashion Dis on mm-hmm. AMI-TV is out. Casting for it is out. And if you want to know how you can get involved and why Fashion Dis is such a great show, the host of the show, Ardra Shepard, is joining us to give us more info on that. We also have our CNIB Smart Life segment. And just a heads up, we've changed this segment from the first Thursday of the month to the first Monday of the Whoa. month. So that's why it's now. Oh, big I changes. I know, I know. I know, exactly. Keeping you posted. So we're joined by Smart Life Coaches Mazen and Maria, and they're going to tell us about accessible gifts that you can find for the holidays for your loved ones, friends, and family members with low vision or blindness. Uh, Also, we're talking to um, Michael Babcock on our Tech Talk about using Microsoft Word online to transcribe audio. This is a pretty big feature that he's excited about. Very good. Ramya, have a great day. Have a great show. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Sounds good, Dave. That's Remy Amethyst, the host of Kelly and Company, coming your way 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Coming up next... There's been a new bill introduced in New Brunswick that says people with disabilities must be paid minimum wage. Workers with disabilities must be paid minimum wage. Ryan Dillahanty will take you in for a closer look. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's head into Atlantic Canada to catch up with AMI content development specialist Ryan Delahanty in Halifax. Say good morning, Ryan. Morning, Dave. How are you today? I'm well. Let's start in New Brunswick, where the province is looking to reinforce some minimum wage standards for workers with disabilities. What's the latest here, Ryan? Last Tuesday, the New Brunswick government introduced a bill that would prevent people with disabilities from getting less than minimum wage for the same work as others. Uh, Many felt eliminating these below minimum wage stipends for workers with disabilities was long overdue. In a news release, post-secondary education, training, and labor minister Trevor Holder called the practice archaic, while Shelley Petit, the chairperson of the New Brunswick Coalition of Persons with Disabilities, said she didn't understand what took the government so long, uh, saying they were paid often egregiously less, she told CBC News, of workers with disabilities. Uh, there'd, there'd be all these uh, in Ontario for years until very recently, there was what they'd call these workshop programs that would be paying people four dollars, five dollars an hour. And uh, some some minimum wage changes in late 2017 changed that. And there were actually people inside the disability community who were like, no, 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 we don't deserve minimum wage. <clears throat> and one of the only times I've ever gotten true hate mail on the show was when I came out and told those people they were against the movements. It's difficult. A lot of times they'll use the excuse, oh, they're getting new skills, new opportunities, but those things don't necessarily emerge or don't really result to anything uh, beneficial. Mm-hmm. So I can understand the uh, the mixed feelings there. Ryan, how does this fit into the broader disability action plan in New Brunswick? 
And so this uh, is coming out of an action plan that was introduced in 2020, and this was addressing the 28th of 43 recommendations that were included in that report from the Premier's Council on Disabilities. And so this was uh, something that I think uh, a lot of people considered, you know, very serious where, um, you know, it's uh, something that's been long overdue, as we said. And so other recommendations uh, that came alongside of this were calls for service animal legislation, improving the accessibility of government websites and communications, increasing fines for the misuse of accessible parking spots, increasing the supply of affordable and accessible housing options, improving access to ASL interpretation services and assistive technologies such as sight loss and hearing loss equipment and much more. Ryan, I think we'll put a pin in the story for now as there's obviously going to be more updates on this disability action plan, but thank you for this update. Let's jump into the world of Ryan Delahanty's autobiography because uh, you were out and about yesterday. This weekend, the Nova Scotia Open Goalball Tournament was held in Halifax. You were on site. You even handed out some hardware. You handed out the bronze medal on behalf of AMI. So tell me a little bit about the weekend. How was the experience? It was great. And so there was action all day Saturday, all day yesterday. And uh, early action saw Nova Scotia emerge as the fan favorite for gold. uh, But a critical loss Sunday morning knocked them down to the bronze medal game. So in that game, uh, Nova Scotia was playing against sort of a hybrid team with players from Alberta and Quebec. Maybe even saw a BC jersey on that team as well. And so with about two minutes left, Nova Scotia was leading 10 to 4, made a a lineup change, uh, lost a couple goals but still hung on for the bronze medal winning 10 to 6 then it was Ontario against BC in the gold medal game and uh, BC pretty quickly off to a 3 nothing lead uh, there was an own goal by Ontario which uh, I could tell they found very regrettable uh, followed by a quick penalty shot goal which stretched the lead to 6 nothing for BC oh, and that wow. was about halfway through the first half So looked maybe insurmountable, no further goals, so pretty solid defense from that point onwards. Six nothing at the end of the first half for BC. Uh, Ontario scored a couple impressive goals late, but pretty much every time they were quickly met with a response from BC uh, who would get a goal pretty much the next throw afterwards. Uh, So they held on and it ended with uh, BC taking gold 11 to five in the finals and Ontario uh, quickly getting in their cabs and racing to the airport, uh, grabbing their silver medals. So I couldn't get a photo of the whole Ontario team together (laughs) as they were. One of them was accidentally handed a gold and they had to chase him out the door to make sure he took the proper silver medal. And he wanted that wasn't how he wanted to take home the gold. He wanted the silver medal that he earned. So they got that corrected. Typical (laughs) Ontarians, always in a rush, always in a rush is Ontarians don't know how to enjoy life. Uh, Ryan, we're going to do a deep dive on the whole event with Jenny Bovard, uh, one of the organizers and our friend and podcast host later on this week. But just tell me generally on the ground, what was the vibe? It was great. It's a pretty small gymnasium. So pretty much all the spectator seats were full. Of course, uh, you can't always show your enthusiasm for the game. You have to keep quiet as the play is in action. And then only when there's a little pause, uh, can you uh, applaud and hoot and holler and cheer. Uh, but it was a really great day. I got to see a few friends, the uh, the Nickersons, who've been really getting immersed in goal ball. So it was great to see Harry uh, being one of the younger players in the Nova Scotia team get out and uh, get some plays in. And uh, a couple close calls, a couple uh, a blooper, a couple 
couple, you know, people that took uh, some hard hits with the goal ball, making dramatic saves. But uh, yeah, it was really great uh, weekend. Everybody had a wonderful time there. Oh yeah, the bumps and bruises after a weekend of playing goal ball. There's no doubt that there's going to be some folks uh, icing up a couple bruises today. No doubt about that one. Hey Ryan, we've got about a minute and a half left here on the clock, but you wanted to make sure people knew about a Halifax Accessibility Advisory Committee town hall that's coming down the pipeline next week. Yeah, this is a great annual event. Really, if you want to know what's happening, what's in progress with accessibility, what people want to focus on, if you want to raise any issues yourself, this is really the best opportunity where the Halifax Regional Municipality Accessibility Advisory Committee holds an annual town hall event to envision an accessible, inclusive city together. It'll be happening next Thursday, November 17th from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. at the Paulo Regan Hall in the Halifax Central Library. And so you can register for the virtual Zoom session where you can actually pose questions remotely. And to do that, visit the link on halifax.ca slash accessibility town hall. And then it's also live streamed to view on YouTube for those who can't make it in person and who don't want to participate in the virtual discussion. You can just uh, passively observe the proceedings on the city's YouTube channel as well. So that'll be next Thursday, the 17th. Register if you want to bring any issues forward or uh, participate yourself. Ryan, I'm sure uh, you enjoyed being out amongst the people over the weekend, but it is still nice to be able to every now and then take in a town hall from the comfort of your own home. It's true. I saw John Mulaney Friday night with about 7,000 other Haligonians. That was still a lot to be around that many people. Oh my gosh, how was the show? <laughs> it was great. A lot of uh, his rehab life mostly, uh, but a lot of pretty amazing material. We had to seal our phones in pouches for the duration of the yeah. show and have them removed afterwards. So hush hush uh, top secret on that I, stuff i think that more entertainment venues should be doing that i think we should be taking people's phones away so not sticking their phones up in the middle of concerts getting in my way true it would have been nice to be able to find my friends in the venue that i wasn't sitting with ah. but without the phone that wasn't happening yeah fair, fair point but yeah i'll grant who you cares? That it was a great show yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll grant you that one sometimes <laughs> it makes navigation a little tricky uh ryan thank you for this have a great day you too, thanks. That's Ryan Delahanty, Content Development Specialist for AMI, joining us from Halifax, Nova Scotia. That's all the time we have for the show today, but don't worry, we're back again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. We'll talk to Lenny Goggins. Lenny will describe a new inclusive project called the New Inclusive Economy, a research project that is aiming to build a more inclusive labor market in British Columbia. Feels like a concept we explore over and over and over again, and we'll continue to do so because it's important for you and the disability community more broadly. Join us tomorrow morning, 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI-tv. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.